Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night. Come on in from this chilly Chicago evening. The wind off the lake does just cut to the bone, doesn't it? And it promises even worse in the months to come. Come on in and get situated. Settle in and find something warm to drink and good to eat. I have some news to share. Ah, you've noticed the boxes, yes. Well, the news relates to that. Today is moving day. Weeks ago, or, oh, has it been months already? I took this place here in the nook with Mahler, uh, its ink black cat, as a sort of house sitter. But um, things did not go the way that any of us had hoped, uh, and the rightful occupant of the nook will not be returning. Some of you and some of our neighbors here in the District of Wonders have encouraged me to find my own place instead of trying to occupy a space that I could not properly live in. And they are right. Next week, we will find ourselves in new digs, and I'll make sure to give you the forwarding address so you'll be able to find your way. Just for the sake of clarity, Tales of the Terrify isn't going anywhere anytime soon, nor will you have to adjust the dials on whatever device you listen to us on. There are just some trappings of our place that I hate to put away, but I must. So, again, if you haven't already, go ahead and take a seat. You, over there, careful of that box. It's marked fragile for a reason. And our night will continue. First up, thank you for joining us for the recordings from Larry's Memorial. As a long-standing tradition of the podcast, we do love to apologize. 
when we botched something. In the second episode, we did not properly credit Deborah Miller with her reading of Root Soup, Winter Soup. You can find that at roughly the 54-minute mark of episode 142. Deborah, our apologies. Secondly, news has come to me of two different anthologies that will include Larry's work. When details are more firm, you'll hear about it from us. And third, thank you to everyone who expressed interest in our open editor position. We now have selected two, yes, two editors to join the show. Next week, as we settle into our new home, I'll have a bit more information to give them proper introductions. This evening, we have actually three stories for you. Right Away by Sean Gannis, ATM by Frank A. Shuri, and A Private Viewing by Scott K. Andrews. Tonight's story from Sean Gannis, Right Away, he describes the feel of the story concerning that feeling of desperate obsession most writers feel when they are in the thick of crafting a story and how dangerous such a feeling is when it just won't go away. He is an unpublished writer, toiling in Nashville, Tennessee, writing whenever school and night shifts in a haunted hotel will allow. When he's not revising and submitting work, he keeps a blog at seangannis.wordpress.com. You can also find him on Twitter at TweetTheHorror. And now... Right away. It comes like a headache, but one that promises a climax of universal proportions. I wake up in the middle of the night, drenched in sweat, panting from the effort of cliché. My wife mumbles something that almost sounds like, what is it? Before she turns over and goes back to sleep. I have a primitive, powerful urge to run a hand over her exposed ass, But there is work to do. I get out of bed, pull the sheet over her naked body to keep out the autumn chill, and go to my desk. I sweep the piles of notebooks to the carpet, kneading them out of sight but not yet willing to throw them away. I'll scoop them up at dawn, when I'm sure the skeleton of this flash will be hammered into something resembling the prose I saw in my sleep. I dim the glow of the screen as much as I can. I save last night's work, open a new file, a pure, uncluttered file. My fingers dance on the keys. The relief of pressure is temporary. As I work, I feel something I can only describe as oozing. Everything is pouring out of me, soaking into the keyboard and gumming up the circuits. It's there, but there is so much to tell, and only so many letters my ten fingers can type at a time. But all stories begin this way, especially the good ones. I settle in for a long night, as it dawns on me that this will not begin as a simple outline. This is real, a new, breathing work, my brain having a baby. The labour is always a slow, agonising process. I simply trust that I'll love the child when it's born. My wife wakes up and sees me still bent over the computer. I've typed up 30 pages since last night, and if anything, the rhythm grows faster. I'm mildly worried my hands will outrun me, but I keep this fear in the back of my head. She walks around naked, picking out her clothes for the day. She has a huge smile on her face. It pleases her when she sees me like this fevered with a new project. It solidifies the ideal she has of living with an artist. She makes more money than me, frankly, but she loves the idea of fevered passions boiling inside the enigmatic image of me she keeps in her mind. Sometimes I wonder if she thinks of that when we have sex, 
the fiery writer exploding his fury into her. But I make enough to pay half of the bills and then some. So it isn't like she's keeping me. Her support has validation, and she loves our marriage all the more for it. I feel her kiss my shoulder, whisper good morning in my ear. I turn, kiss her, and keep at it. She asked if I'd like eggs, and I tell her I couldn't love her more than in that offer. I break concentration long enough to watch her as she saunters into the kitchen, then almost instantly I regret the interruption. In that blink, the words backed up too densely, and my fingers scramble to untangle them. In an hour I've eaten, trying to peck my way through as I slurp eggs off buttery toast. She's dressed for work, in a pencil skirt that almost always ensures a new contract, and I look down her ruffled blouse as she kisses me goodbye. I watch her leave again. Whatever love she doesn't take with her out the door goes instantly back into the words. I am still working, as naked as when I started. I have been in this chair for 18 hours, and she gives a little laugh as she walks inside. I feel a sudden flurry of irritation, like I always do when I'm wrapped too tight in pages and the world tries to loosen my bonds. It's gone quickly enough, and I give her a smile and a hey you. Hey you yourself. She's smiling mischievously. She's had a good day, and her man is committed to his work to a comical level. I think she finds it cute. The glimmer in her eye tells me she's feeling a little horny. She walks over, commenting on how I haven't even dressed. The eccentricity highlights the fantasy for her, I think. I feel her fingers on my arm, and something in me must smell something she's giving off, because I stand at attention almost instantly. Despite my potency, my hands don't leave the keyboard. I keep typing even as her hands trickle down my stomach and stroke me. My nerves warm like the element of an oven, and I turn to bury my face in her cleavage. I mumble when I do, not coherently, but she can't hear me over her heavy breathing anyway, so she probably thinks it's the usual nothings we whisper to each other. In fact, I'm simply reciting the last paragraph I worked on. The wording isn't right, somehow, and I must know how to lay it straight. She doesn't hear me typing, even as she drops to work her mouth on me. The few breaks I take are for the usual stuff. Coffee, cigarettes, food, showers, sleep, sex. She ensures the breaks for sex. I'm not generally attractive, but she seems particularly attracted to me lately. My eagerness to return to work comes off in heavy spasms of rough, aggressive force, and she can't pull me in deep enough when it rolls through me. But I'm always back to work when we're done. At first it killed her, and I would hear her giggling at how serious I seemed when I was back at the keyboard. I was overdoing it a bit with the writer's image, but she didn't mind. I think the luster is wearing off, though. Tonight she asked if I couldn't take a break for two seconds. She wants me to hold her. After several requests, I finally save my work, one long, long file, and climb in bed beside her. I'm glad her back's against me. She can't see me looking over my shoulder to the dimly glowing screen. I haven't gone out in three weeks, and truth be told, I still haven't gotten dressed. She's irritable tonight. She wanted to go out for dinner with two friends of hers, and I promised her we would, but when she's dressed and ready I'm still at the keyboard, typing faster than my hands really want me to. I don't have any excuses. I just can't stop. The sentences bottleneck in my head, and for every one I wiggle free, another four get jammed in place. I apologise as fervently as I can, beg her to apologise for me, and ask how Cathy and Laurie are. I tell her I can't stop. Not now. It's coming too fast. Too much. She gives me a wry smile. 
thinking to herself this is just a small drawback for living the artistic fantasy. She goes out, and I stay seated. She's still a little irked when she gets back, seeing me still seated, still staring with blank focus into the light bulb where I vomit my words. She sighs a lot as she gets undressed, goes to bed with a curt, good night. I apologise again, but she doesn't respond. I keep typing until my head falls beside the keyboard, and I sleep against my will. She got pretty mad this morning. Apparently she doesn't see the point in sleeping by the keyboard. I have a stack of papers printed up, and she caught me using them as a pillow. I ask her what the big deal is, and she explodes. She can't figure out what it is about her I don't like. I try to explain that it isn't the case. I don't like her any less. Jesus, I love her. But she won't hear it. She doesn't know the feeling. She doesn't have unwritten pages pressing against her insides, cutting their way to her brain with their thin, cutting edges. She gets dressed and storms out. I tell her I love her. All I hear her say is, bullshit. She screams, look at me, just look at me. Jesus, I'm so backed up already. And now, now she wants me to turn around. She can't give me a few more hours to straighten it out, to get everything down. In a little bit. You always say that. Soon, baby, soon, when I'm finished. You're never finished. I'm trying, goddammit, I'm trying. She leaves, slams the door. She doesn't come back for hours. The sun is coming up when she finally comes stumbling through the door, smelling like vodka and strong cologne. She's giggling in the other room, but I can't risk listening to pick it apart. The words are too jealous to allow that. She comes home drunk a lot, swearing awkwardly at me for long stretches of time. She calls me a faggot for not wanting her, a bastard for not loving her. She asks me what I am, if I'm not a husband. What am I, she asks? A writer? Are all writers fuckers? Of course not. Not if I ever want to fuck. She tells me I'm talentless, that I've gone crazy. I can't stand that my books are just popular. She tells me I want to be great, and she laughs. I never will be. I tell her I just have to finish. It won't be much longer. Much longer? Much longer than 10,000 pages? Jesus Christ. It's just a rough draft. She yells again, and I stop talking. The words slow down too much when I speak, and every second they grow exponentially. I can never catch up, but I hope to work until they stop pouring in. She mocks me. She calls me lame and stupid. It's childish of her, but she says them. She says I smell. Fair enough. I haven't showered in a few nights. Too much opportunity for the sentences to jumble. She leaves again after catching her breath. She doesn't come back in the morning. The fury is back, that flame of annoyance I feel at anything beyond the page. The story is my entire mood. When I'm wrenched away from it, I will bite and thrash until I get back to what I need to do. Work. She occasionally asks how I am. She's been loading boxes, stopping occasionally to quietly cry. I don't respond usually, though lately I have thrown on a robe to try to accommodate her, but I haven't been in our bed for weeks. I fall to the floor to sleep, climb back into my chair when I wake up. I'm not ignoring her out of mercy or indifference. The rage is boiling, and if I speak even a little, it'll pour out in a molten river. She's crying behind me. She's on her knees, both hands on my arm. She's begging me to say something, say anything. She needs me to just let her know that I know she's there. Even if I don't want her, she'll stay if I just talk to her. Please, she says. I rage, I fume, 
I tell her she's a murderer and a foul defiler. I tell her to leave, go away. I tower over her as she crawls backward away from me. She finally gets to her feet and flees the house. The door stays open behind her, and I watch her car peel out of the driveway and tear into the street. I don't pine. I just need to know I'm clear before I go back to the book. The fever hits me when I begin typing. The potential rage that will explode if the story is taken away. But for now the story gives me the warm fluid ease I need. It feels like satiny cream to me, soothing the acid hunger that builds as I lust for an ending. Men came through the house today. They carried away the boxes she'd packed. One of them asked if I can close my robe. I ignore him, even after he grabs a handful of change from the dish by the door. They leave the door open, but I don't get up to close it until I feel my throat closing up. I remember I haven't drunk anything for two days, and I rush to the kitchen for water. I chug from a huge plastic cup as I slam and lock the door. It's dark outside, and the moon is high. Is it midnight? The men told me they'd had an appointment to come by at ten that morning. I drop the empty cup to the floor and return to work. My feet no longer get numb at night, and I sweat during the day. I guess the weather's warming up outside. I've printed most of what I've written. Piles of paper surround me and the desk. The trips to get ink cartridges would be little torches if I couldn't order them online. But the time it takes to answer the door is still awful. Now that it's warmer, I can leave the door open. I don't mind the bugs, as long as my ink can simply be walked inside without my having to stand to receive it. I find the bugs like me a good deal. Delivery men are wary of me, sitting here crawling in insects. Maybe I smell bad. I need to finish. Police came by with city officials. They're angry that I haven't paid my utilities. I point out the money comes straight out of my account. They point out that my account hasn't had sufficient funds in over a year. An officer presses play on my answering machine. It takes forever for them to listen to my messages. My editor is saying he can't believe I won't respond. I hear him use the word filthy and squalid. Later he regretfully tells me the publisher is breaking my contract. He wishes me the best. The machine says the message is eight months old. The officer speaks slowly, asking if I live alone. I tell him yes, but my wife's name is also on the lease. He asks my wife's name. I tell him. They're back a few days later, telling me the only woman with that name they could find remarried six months ago. Two years after our divorce was made final. He sounds both sorry and terrified when he asks how I take care of myself. I tell him the honest truth. I'm a writer. My writing supports me. I am told I cannot take care of myself. Clearly I can, but they say it's a health hazard to leave me where I am. Ten years have built my papers into towers throughout my home. Insects have eaten out the oldest ones, made infernal nests. Swarms billow up when one is knocked over by the hospital workers who come to take me away. I break free when I'm walking through the yard. I'm weak but fast. My computer breaks against the hard ground, but the last page is in my hand, and I can continue with this. It doesn't matter what else I lose. If I can finish the story, then finally the revisions can start. What matters now is finishing it. I hide beneath a bundle of roots, under a tree growing from the slope beyond my backyard. Somehow they don't find me. After several hours I find a pencil on a street corner. I take a bundle of blank paper from my former stoop and wander under the twilight into my woodland retreat. I can't write fast enough to keep the older pages from rotting. They mildew and melt away, 
Holes pepper them when it rains, turns the stacks into piles of soggy, pockmarked mountains. But I am hopeful I can finish. I have piles of wrapped paper and a handful of pens. I can simply kill another man if I need more. I wipe my hands against what's left of my robe. The blood smears on the page as I write. The robe is barely sufficient. I should have rifled through his closet after I beat his face in. The rain causes the river to swell, and the branch I use to end his life washes away. I use my body as an umbrella. Every page I finish I put out into the rain, letting the words wrinkle and wash away. Stories bleed, just like people. After I savaged her with the bat, I thought I'd found a mother load, a desk drawer literally filled with pens and paper. Then I found a second, full of ink ribbons. I opened the metal case on her rug, and the typewriter shone like the spark of life. I grab a robe this time. I learned my lesson last year. I wrap the ribbons in a towel, tuck the paper under an arm. The typewriter is heavy with promise. The winter is unusually cold. I'm not sure how well I can stay warm with all these festering holes in my skin. The worst are in my legs. Crawling things squirm, deep inside, little white worms and black things with buzzing wings. It's so cold. The gunning in the typewriter can barely hold me awake. The keys are fighting back. It's getting harder to push the keys through the rust. I'm having to fight for breath. The hail beats against me. I don't have the strength to stand against it. My old house is boarded up, but I sneak in with my typewriter. It's old and rotten, but it keeps me out of the rain. It starts to feel like home, as the sound of typing rattles the walls. Just push. Just push the key. Can't breathe. Press the key. How can it be this dark? There was a full moon a moment ago. If I try, I can make a key fling through the air. The paper is brown, little more than film. After months of this, it simply falls away. But I keep going. The story has to end. Children wander inside, trying to scare each other with screams and whispers. They don't look where they're going as they stumble through the dark. They stop cold when they bump me and knock my skull from my neck. They run when I press a key. It seems silly to be scared of a pin and a typewriter but it's what they can't see that seems to scare them most. And what scares me? That the story will end after I do. I have all the time in the world. A few years pass, and I will myself to press another key. And another. My bones crumble away, but the typewriter is left behind. That's good. At least I can still work. Others come, set up cameras or sit and watch. They laugh or scream when a pin flies run shrieking when a key snaps. I don't mind. They don't distract me. The work is so big, and I have so much to tell. All the time in the world. But the story has more, and every second that passes is another screaming page. And still there's more. There is always more. I press another key, and the carriage rings. The bar flips. The carriage resets. And the story goes on. That was Sean Gannis's Right Away, read to us by Trevor Gensch. Trevor was born in 1971 and has been apologizing for it ever since. A seemingly lifelong obsession with a TV show, Doctor Who, has led Trevor to being involved with a bewildering range of fandom with the creation of clubs, hosting podcasts, and writing for fanzines. It all culminated in 2011 with his first overseas trip, which just happened to be a Doctor Who convention in Los Angeles. 
Trevor is only now, at the ripe age of 41, delving into the serious worlds of science fiction authors such as Bester, Heinlein, and Clark, and he wonders why it has taken him so long to do so. Next up will be A.T.M. by Frank Shuri. He has been published in Silver Moon, Nocturnal Ooze, Tales from the Moonlit Path, The Cynic Fantastic Horror, Bizarium, Burial Day Books, and Forever Underground Magazines, as well as Bleeding Ink, a collection of dark tales anthology, and Tales of the Undead. And now, listen to One Man Tangle with the Wrong Automatic Teller. He floored the accelerator and savored the surge of adrenaline that flushed through his body as the car responded. The Mustang blew by all the other cars on the West Side Highway, living up to its name. He had survived another day in the financial district and now could almost feel the warm massage of a shower and sniff the sweet aroma of coffee beans. Paradise waited at home, and speed would bring him there. But first, he had to make a quick stop. The beast was down to a quarter of a tank, and a twenty wasn't going to cover it. He hated to use the charge card because it cost more per gallon. Being in the money game, Buster knew that every penny counted. Buster Levinson was the master of the game. There was an ATM on the corner of 39th Street that he could stop at. Two minutes and he'd be back on the highway. Ten minutes after that, he'd be pulling into his driveway. As he passed 37th Street, the glow of a fluorescent light caught his eye. Yet, this couldn't be right. The ATM was on the corner of 39th Street, not 38th. He drove by the ATM, a glowing beacon in a sea of shadow. Most of the streetlights on the highway were out, and there was zero foot traffic. Buster had driven this route at the same time for years, but never recalled the area being so deserted. Not being able to come up with an explanation, he dismissed the thought and drove on. Time was money. Pulling up to the corner of 39th Street, the spot where he had visited the ATM just two nights earlier, was an empty lot. Could they have raised the building that had been part of so quickly? In the ever-redevelopment of the city, he supposed it was possible. Yet, the fact that it was suddenly gone troubled him. He could not explain why which further bothered Buster Levinson, who was a man of answers. He cranked the wheel, navigating the vehicle into a U-turn and pulled up to the corner of 38th Street. Getting out of the car, he felt the familiar creak of his knees protesting the burden of his massive weight. He approached the ATM, which hung on the facade of a brick warehouse that looked like it had not been utilized for some time. He wondered what would stop an even amateur thief from ripping the machine off the crumbling brick it was anchored to. Not his problem. He was making withdrawal, not a deposit. Within feet of the ATM, the overhead light was almost blinding. The polished metal casing of the machine, coupled with the harsh lighting, reminded him of a doctor's checkup when he was a child. The crinkle of paper as he had lied down on the examination table had always been followed by the cold kiss from the stethoscope. He shivered despite the heat and removed his debit card from his wallet. He pressed the start button and the prompt came on the screen. Please insert card. The card had been halfway into the slot when it was sucked in with sudden force. His index finger jammed violently against a metal lip and he pulled his hand back in both pain and surprise. Looking down at his hand, the nail was pulled back from the tip of the index finger, which was trickling blood. He spun around from the machine, his curses drowned out by the rush of passing cars. With his other hand, he removed a handkerchief that was embroidered with a large B and applied pressure to the wound. Slowly, he looked up and down the sidewalk. There was no sign of life other than the vehicles on the highway. 
This was good. Buster did not like to be laughed at. He looked for a company name or phone number on the ATM, already formulating the basis of a lawsuit. However, the machine lacked any identifying characteristics other than a screen, numerical punch pad, and slots for cards, cash, and receipts. It was extremely ordinary and quite generic. The screen then flashed, Please enter your PIN. Using his uninjured hand, he punched in the numbers, having to restart twice in the process. Enter your name. He started to type and then stopped. His name. Since when did a teller machine need a name? He then recalled some investigative shows on television revealing how thieves could copy your cards by scanners and cameras placed on automated teller machines. It could be new security measure, or it could be that the machine was trying to make his life miserable. That is, if a machine could intentionally cause misery. L-E-V-I-N-S-O-N. Blood flew from the injured hand onto the buttons as he pressed them. By now, the handkerchief was saturated. Good for them, he thought, not knowing who the them was that he was referring to. There was a mechanical sound, and slowly the drops of blood were sucked, as if in a vacuum, into the slot marked deposits. Buster blinked, trying to make sense of what he saw. A flash across the screen broke him out of his daze. Thank you for your deposit. Thank you for your deposit. Thank you for your deposit. Buster. He stood there for what seemed like a very long time. It was a joke, and he braced himself for Ashton Kutcher or some other upstart to jump out with a camera crew. However, with each passing moment, his smile faded. There was only him and the automated teller machine. His amusement was replaced by anger as it became clear that the damned machine was trying to rip him off. He refused to become the victim of identity theft or some other scam. The screen then flashed. Mr. Levinson, it is time for your deposit. I have your deposit right here, he spat and raised one well-worn boot. He snapped his leg forward, ignoring the shot of pain in his knee. The heel of his boot hit the screen with considerable force. It shook, but remained intact. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The overhead light flickered. It was as if the machine was laughing at him. The screen changed from blue to yellow. Mr. Levinson, enter your deposit into the appropriate slot. He hitched up his pants, maintaining eye contact with the screen. He'd play along for now. I don't have a deposit. I need cash. 
There was a flash, and then the blue screen returned. You do have a deposit to make, Mr. Levinson. Please proceed. He took a step back and looked up and down the street. Nothing. The machine had answered him. He was being both audio and video recorded. Slowly, he reached into the front pocket of his pants. No money, Mr. Levinson. It is like that saying, your money is no good here. He retracted his hand and stepped close to the screen. Inches from it, his eyes scanned the surface, taking in every inch. He could not locate the camera, but he knew that they could be made as small as a pin. Somewhere, some social reject was scanning his debit card information and was laughing at him. Go ahead, Mr. ATM. Tell me what I should give you. The screen flashed from blue to orange and then to gray. The screen remained a blank sea of gray for several moments until a message in bright white lettering streamed from left to right across it. Your ears, Mr. Levinson. Please deposit your ears into the appropriate slot. He tried to laugh, but was only successful in producing a coughing sound. Images of an unkempt adolescent at a keyboard, chuckling as he typed away in some posh condo made him enraged. He would go to the police. He would freeze his accounts, credit cards. The slug that was controlling the machine would be found and held accountable. Tempting offer, but I will pass. You get nothing from me, but when I contact the police, they will give you a cozy little jail cell. The screen went dark, and the machine began to vibrate violently. There was silence. He had jumped back and braced for mechanical arms to grab him and tear him to pieces. There were no arms, only silence. The silence was eventually broken by a beeping sound. He crept forward, ready for an attack. The screen was black with a single message in the center of the screen. Failure to comply will result in the following. 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 The screen, then, was replaced by a scene. A woman was stirring a large pot on a stovetop. Behind her was a mahogany table with a polished finish. It was a stunning piece of furniture of superior craftsmanship. He should know. He had built it last year. He let his fist fly, and it smashed against the screen with the effect of a fly hitting a windshield. Blood that flew from his knuckles was quickly consumed by the machine. The deposit slot then flicked closed. The bastard had a camera in his kitchen. It appeared to be a live feed, but he could not tell for sure. He watched as his wife slowly stirred the pot, adding ingredients on occasion. She was clearly focused on the task at hand and did not notice the cord from the toaster rising from the table behind her. Slowly, the cord appeared, coiling and uncoiling. He grabbed the ATM with both hands. The overhead light, once bright white, was now a deep red. Stay away from her! I can't cut myself! I can't! There was a mechanical sound like that of turning gears, and then an object was expelled from the cash slot. His hands trembled as he grasped the handle of the knife. The blade was bathed in a crimson glow from the light above. On the screen, the cord had wrapped around his wife's neck to the sound of canned laughter. The dull blade dug into the thin flesh at the base of his ear as he began to saw vigorously. Blood sprayed in all directions as he worked. He was then pulled violently forward as if caught in a huge vacuum. The bones in his face shattered as he was sucked into the deposit slot. The last thing he heard before his skull collapsed was screaming. And that was... ATM by Frank Shuri, and it was read to us by, well, me. There's a link to my homepage in the show notes, but other than that, let's move on to the third and final story of the evening, A Private Viewing by Scott K. Andrews. 
The story was first available in Pandemonium Stories of the Apocalypse, which is now very much out of print. Mr. Andrews' most recent work is Time Bomb and also authored the School's Out trilogy. In the link in the show notes, I'll also draw your attention to the short fiction section of his homepage, which lists more of the sort of things that a Tales to Terrify listener would love than we can properly list here. And now, a private viewing by Scott K. Andrews. I don't really think I believe in redemption. Punishment, consequences, responsibility, these things I understand. It's how I was raised, I suppose. But reformation and rehabilitation, it baffle me. It surely can't be enough to just say sorry for the bad things you've done. And anyway, how can you prove you mean those apologies, that you're not just saying whatever the world wants to hear? Why should those of us who work hard, keep our heads down, treat our neighbours with respect and consideration, be nice to those who aren't nice in turn? Hey, doesn't seem fair. So no, I don't believe in redemption. I believe in justice. Which explains, as far as anything can, why I did what I did. John's skull feels like it has a metal spike stuck through it. He tries to move his head, lower it into his hands so he can emit the soft groan of agony that wants out, but... His hands rise only an inch before the cold metal bands around his wrists dig tight, and anyway, his head is stuck in something. What the... He's sitting on a soft, round circle, and oh, Jesus, he's bare-arsed. His warm butt cheeks stick to foamy plastic, giving him an unwanted sense memory of that time he did Shania in the front seat of an abandoned Mondeo, his naked backside stuck to the hot brown PVC. He opens his eyes, winces, closes them again. He tries to move his feet, but they too are bound by metal rings. He panics and immediately regrets it. His head is encircled by nails. The instant he struggles, a ring of pain cuts into his scalp and he screams as blood trickles down his cheeks and ears. John is not much of a thinker. He's a doer. But he can't do shit until he works out where he is and what has happened to him. He would never have the presence of mind to list the facts at hand, logical, ordered thought processes that are as alien to him as patience and empathy. But the following realisations tumble through his head. He is sitting down on a soft toilet seat thing, wearing nothing on his lower half, although he is still wearing his T-shirt and hoodie. His hands and feet are bound with, he rattles his arms, handcuffs. The chair is made of metal and it's fixed to the floor, There's a circle of nails around his head so that if he moves it up, down, left, right, forward or backward, he will be cut. His simple analysis of the situation is that he's fucked and completely unable to move. Other facts that he unconsciously registers. He's in a large room. The reverberating echo of his struggles tell him that much. There's a very bright light in front of him. He's not alone. This last fact creeps up on him as he realises... He can hear soft breathing behind his right ear. He opens his eyes again, squinting as they adjust to the light, which hurts his head. He's looking at a wall. A mad swirl of colour dances before him as it oozes and slows, solidifying, taking shape and form until he's sure his vision is focused and clear. John has no idea what he's looking at, but it scares him. Most people think like me, I reckon. 
The government opened a new website last week so that people could start petitions online. 10,000 signatures and they have to debate it in Parliament, apparently. And you know what the first wave of petitions were about? Not better prison conditions, not more lenient sentences, more investment in rehabilitation programmes, better support for ex-cons who want to go back to work. The death penalty. That's what the people clamoured for. Voice of the people, that is. People like me. Honest. Hard-working. Straightforward. If somebody killed a friend or a family member, I'd pull the lever myself. No hesitation. After all, the punishment has to fit the crime. Anybody with any sense can see that. So when I caught up with that little thug, well, I wasn't going to turn him over to the coppers, was I? See him locked up in some cushy cell with a telly for four months and then out on parole? I don't think so. Anyway, even before I hit him over the head with a baseball bat, I realised I was uniquely placed to dispense justice. John tries to speak, to ask what the fuck is going on, but there's something in his mouth. He explores its smooth roundness with his tongue, bites down gently, afraid for his teeth, feels it squash slightly. As he bites, he feels a slight response from the straps that hold the object in place, and realises it, it's one of those gags, like in Pulp Fiction, like the Gimp War, big rubber ball held by leather straps. He can't breathe through his mouth at all, and the only sounds he can make are groans from the back of his throat. The breathing is still there behind him, steady and calm. If he could just speak, he's sure he could sort this out. The fuck is this? He'd say, kicking off with a bit of bravado. Look, you want money, yeah? My uncle, he's made blood. One call, right? And you sorted. Let me call him. We can make this right, yeah? He'd beg. He isn't proud. But he isn't even to be allowed to plead for mercy, and, and that confuses him. He'd made Jevon beg for mercy once. It'd been fun. What was the point of capturing him like this if they didn't want to make him beg? Look at the picture, says a soft voice in his ear. He hears footsteps then moving away across the hard parquet floor and a door swings shut. John has never experienced total silence before. The quietest place he's ever been was when he took his GCSEs, but even then they'd been shuffling feet, turning pages, the hum of air conditioning... The totality of the silence that engulfs him now is perhaps the scariest thing about his predicament. The room is dark except for a single bright light which sits on the wall ahead of him, long and thin, shaded, casting its bright glow on a huge canvas painting. He can't move his head to look more closely, but out the corner of his eye he reckons he can make out a skylight in the far corner. It's dark, night time. He's in an art gallery. He's been in one before with the school when he was little. He remembers sniggering at the titties and the old paintings. Filthy. He suddenly realises what the seat is. It's, oh, fuck, what do they call them? A toilet chair thingy, like they have in old folks' homes. He's in an art gallery, at night, strapped to a chair, gagged, tied, sitting on a crapper, wearing a crown of metal thorns in front of a fucking huge painting, and the guy who put him here wants him to look at it. As if he has any choice. The first outbreak of rioting passed my street by. I had a job interview, my first in 18 months. The day after it all kicked off. The interviewer asked me if I'd been affected and I joked that the chavs in my part of town were too lazy even to riot and she laughed. But I saw the moment of hesitation as she worked out that I didn't consider myself to be the chav I suddenly realised she did. 
it all calmed down after a few days. And when I heard I'd got a job, I forgot all about it. The riots hadn't touched me. I'd got a new start, proper employment, chance to pay my own way again. Felt good. I recognised some of the kids from my school on the CCTV pictures the police released afterwards. So I dobbed them in without a second thought. Little shit. But the day after I started work, setting out for my second night shift with a spring in my step, I sensed a new tension in the air. It was different from last time. Harder, edgier somehow. The groups of kids hanging around street corners had a new watchfulness. There was something coming. I sat in the main gallery that night, staring at the paintings on the wall, and my sense of unease grew. The stuff I'm watching over is basically screwed right the fuck up. Huge paintings of fire and hell and weird drawings of... Well, I don't know what the fuck they are, to be honest. The paintings of John Martin. They made me feel, I don't know, weird. The second wave of riots hit days after the exhibition opened, and this time they came right at my door. John tries to work out how he got here. He remembers the excitement building as it became clear the feds weren't even close to coping with the rioting. He had phone calls and texts from his mates urging him to come join the fun, but he didn't like to leave his brother alone in the flat. Their mother worked shifts at a walk-up on Lyle Street, so it fell to John to sit for AK. They spent most nights playing Grand Theft Auto or watching movies. AK didn't have many friends. But when AK was safe in bed, John couldn't resist it anymore. Just a quick trip, he told himself. Get some new trainers for his little brother. Lift him a little cred. That was all he'd do. One quick smash and grab. Turned out he didn't have to. The sports shop window was already shattered. The crowds were still hanging around. No feds anywhere to be seen. So he hopped into the shop and began rummaging around in the debris. By the time he'd got a pair of what was the right size, he could hear sirens in the distance. He hurried to the window and looked out. and He saw the crowd beginning to melt away into the side streets. And then... What? Something hit him. He's sure of that. Then he woke up here in front of this painting. He tries to work out how many nights it's been. Look at a picture. Something in the painting seems to move. He blinks and the impression fades. At least three nights, he reckons. He's been staring at this fucking thing for three nights. No wonder he's starting to see things. Plus, the spike in his head hurts more with each day. Strobing lines appear at the edge of his vision. His arm goes numb. The light hurts. It's a relief when he feels the now familiar prick of the needle in his neck and the drug puts him under for another day's rest in some cupboard or box somewhere. He has no clue where his captor keeps him during opening hours. All he knows is that when he comes to, he'll be back in this chair, his stinking ass cleaned up, his eyes pointed towards that painting for another night. The painting that fills him with such dread. It was my first night off. I'd never worked nights before and it took a lot of getting used to but I'd stayed up all night quite a lot in the last 18 months as I looked after mum. She'd have these nightmares you see. She'd wake up screaming about her father or something. I could never really make it out. She was too confused to explain. I'd calm her down, clean her up, change her sheets, give her some meds, sing her back to sleep with all the songs she sang to me when I was little. She'd only been dead three weeks when I got the job so I was already used to being awake while everyone else was asleep. Felt almost normal. Still messed with my body clock, though, when it became a routine. The first night, I snatched a nap on one of the couches. But the paintings got into my head as I slept. Gave me nightmares. 
Hellfire and damnation, pillars of salt, apocalypse. After that, I started drinking strong coffee and walking around the exhibition non-stop, circuit after circuit. Well, at least I get fit, eh? I tried not to look at the paintings as I walked. I knew it was going to kick off soon. I'd heard breaking glass as I stepped onto the bus the night before, saw the cafe window shattered as I walked home in the half-light before dawn. I was glad it was my night off, thought I could protect my home. It was just a flat above a fried chicken place, rented, nothing fancy. Anyway, when the sailor mum's flat went through, I could buy myself somewhere on my own. But it did have all my stuff in it. My DVDs, my books, my old laptop, and, most precious of all, mum's paintings. Look at the picture. There's a building in the painting. Old, long, stretching away into the distance, cloisters and columns layered like an oblong wedding cake, rising to a tower shrouded by cloud, dust and smoke. A jagged shard of orange lightning jabs at the tower from a black, brooding sky. In the far distance, the vague hint of more layers, higher stories and towers swallowed whole by the encroaching dark. Beneath the building, shadowed arches like mouths, lit from within by orange circles, the eyes of some hideous beast imprisoned beneath the stone edifice, staring out at the world in terror or fury. Around the building, an ocean of fire. The ground splits and cracks, the earth's hot blood seeping out through the wound to lap hungrily at its walls. Stone born of fire, to fire it will return. And in the foreground on a promontory, surely soon to tumble into the molten sea, a figure stands back to the viewer, red cape, shield and spear, shining silver helmet, arm raised. Is this defiance? A shaking fist in the face of doom? Or is it glee? The conductor of this maelstrom, urging it on, orchestrating the destruction. She wasn't much of an artist, my mum. It was an obby like jigsaws or bacon. It made her calm and happy. It was chocolate box stuff, kittens whose eyes were never quite in line, mountains and fields drawn from her imagination, sunsets and flowers and arts. They were vibrant, colourful, naive and slightly embarrassing, but, you know, they were a creation, a thing she made with her hands, where before there had been only blankness, like me. She torched a few of them when the dementia really got a grip, nearly burned the flat down. I managed to clean it up, put out the fire, avoided having to explain to the council. They'd have put her in her home, and I couldn't have allowed that. I took the rest of the pictures away after that incident, kept them at my place. I even hung the least offensive on my wall. It was a watercolour of a beach sunset. After a funeral, I sat and stared at that picture, crying myself dry. So when I got back that morning and found my building aflame and realised that all I had left of my mum was burning, I remember very little about how I went down. I wanted someone to pay. I know I got a baseball bat from somewhere. I recall walking down my street, waving it at looters, and then I saw some spotty little hoodie poking his head out of a looted shop, a pair of trainers in his hand, and I just ran at him. Even as I brought a bat down on his skull, I knew how I was going to punish the little shit. Look at the picture. On the twelfth night, John thinks it's twelfth, but he can't be sure, the lava begins to move. He's been feeling ill for a while. 
The shakes he sucks through the straw, his captor feeds gently past the rubber gag when he loosens the straps a couple of notches are not exactly filling. John thinks he might be starving to death. The smell of his now liquid feces is pungent and sickening too, and what exactly is in the drug that puts him to sleep each morning? There are any number of reasons why he would be beginning to hallucinate. The painting's not moving. He tells himself this over and over again as he watches the lava bubble and ooze. It's not moving. It's not moving. It's not. Iskine took away my paintings. Seems only fit that the paintings I watch over should take away his sanity. Constructing the chair was easy. I knew it would take some time to rob him of his senses, so I planned out a deal with his bodily functions. I mean, it repulsed me, but I'd grown inured to manure through dealing with mum's decline. The commode was hers anyway. It was no skin off my nose. The crown and nails was the wheel from an old second-hand cot. I took it off, clipped the spokes with a pair of pliers and sharpened the ends to points with a whetstone, screwed a plank at the back of the commode and held the wheel in place with a couple of brackets. I'd never realised I was so handy at DIY. Handcuffs from Ann Summers, naturally. The gag, though, was a bit hardcore for Ann, so I had to swallow my embarrassment and trawl a couple of dodgy Soho basement shops. First one had sold out. Finally, I had to fix the chair in place. A couple of heavy weights from the stock room take care of that. The drugs and the syringe, they weren't a problem either. The nearby estate's lousy with the stuff. Dosage was a problem. Thought I'd killed him the first time. He didn't wake up at all the second night. Slept like a baby or a vegetable. Right through. Surfaced eventually, but I reduced the dose from that point. I had the John Martin exhibition all to myself during the night. No one would find him. No one would interrupt the process. During the days, I stashed him in one of the windowless storage cellars, old barrel-vaulted room lacking even a light bulb, deep in the bowels of the museum. The closest I came to discovery was when my relief arrived while the room was still a bit whiffy. She uh, cast me a curious, doubtful glance, so I muttered something about a dodgy kebab and left. Look at the picture. The building oh so slowly starts to tumble into fire. The lightning comes again and again, deafening crashes of heavy thunder like the laughter of some sick god making wince with pain. Then a shudder passes through him, galvanic, and the pain stops. Instead, his head feels tight on the inside, full of bees. His arm goes numb again, his tongue, too. He bites it hard and finds his mouth filling with blood that he cannot spit out. He forces himself to swallow the torrent and feels his gorge rising. Even in his confused state, he knows that vomiting would be fatal. He manages to hold it down. What is happening to his head? Why can't he see through the zebra lines flashing across his vision? All he can make out is an impression of fire, endless fire flickering up the walls. He stares into it without blinking. I don't even know his name. I don't think I've seen him around, hanging with the others. Maybe he was an opportunist. Who knows? Who cares? All I know is that the rioters and looters burned down my flat. He was one of them, so he takes his punishment. Call it collective responsibility. After a week has passed, I start pulling on a balaclava and looking into his eyes each morning before I drug him, just to check if he's still in there. I reckon I'll be able to see it in his eyes when he goes mad. After that, when he's well and truly checked out of Sanity City, I reckon I'll just dump him in an alleyway with a needle in his arm. He'll be no threat to me, not by that point. Look at the picture.
His head is full of cotton wool, but compacted, compressed, pushing outwards, a soft force, a dull pneumatic piston probing his tender skull from the inside. His visual focus has narrowed to a small circle in the middle of a field of orange mist and grey blur. It roves across the burning landscape until it finds a fixed point to latch onto. And the figure on the promontory turns and stares into him. John's terror is base, primitive. He pisses himself even as he feels his cock begin to harden, as if his body, desperate to escape but knowing it can neither fight nor flee, is defaulted in panic to fuck. He tries to shut his eyes, but somehow cannot. He's transfixed as the gaze of the figure devours him whole. He simultaneously voids his bowels and ejaculates, and his vision fades to red as he slumps forward in his chair, unconscious even to the stabbing of the spoke in his forehead and the hot, red blood that drips into his lap. I like to think it was the paintings that drove him mad that staring into them night after night, those tortures, those visions of hellfire and apocalypse, got inside his brain and broke it into pieces. But it could just as easily have been hitting me on the skull really hard with an aluminium baseball bat. And it nags at me, that uncertainty. Was it starvation, fear or injury that created the shambling half-man I pass each morning on my way into work? Long hair matted, beard grimy and thick, eyes sunken and hollowed, stinking of urine and stale sweat as he parades up and down in front of the gallery with a piece of cardboard sign reading, The End Is Nigh. Or was it the paintings? Did their power dethrone his reason, as I suspect they dethroned temporarily the reason of the old city first on the week they arrived, then subsequently and more spectacularly on the week the show opened to the public? Or am I imagining the old thing? Question will not leave me alone. I stand there at night, staring at the back of the figure in pandemonium, pleading for it to turn and answer me. I fancy, perhaps, that the figure wants an answer too. It doubts its own achievement. Requires a second proof of its power to set its mind at rest. It requires a better subject. So I've decided, in the interests of scientific inquiry, to repeat my experiment. One of those fuckers whose picture the police released and who I then turned in, anonymously, of course, is out again. I saw him yesterday laughing it up outside the local boozer. Now, this time I'll be more careful. No violence. I'll use the hypodermic quick and clean like Dexter. That way, when his mind shatters, I'll know for sure. And the paintings will be happy. I have to keep them happy, you see. If I don't, then the fury will be unleashed on the city again. The fragile minds of London's dispossessed children will fill with violence once more and the city will burn. They demand sacrifice. It's a good job I'm here to sate them. I must protect my city from the madness that will make its citizens do such terrible things. Things they would never normally contemplate. Sick, evil, depraved things born of fear and hate, greed and lust. Things I would never, ever do. And that will be that for this evening, friends. I hope you enjoyed all three stories this evening. Instead of bidding you adieu as you leave the nook, 
I'll actually be departing with you. When we find each other again, it will be in new surroundings, with a couple new faces, I might add. But for one more evening, I will wish you pleasant dreams. Mmm. -hmm.